I'll be reading this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 12, as well as Psalm 51. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he, <clears throat> and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned, was greatly kindled, and burned against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun." David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Last, last week, I, 
I left you intentionally in a dark place. You know, we trying to think, can David recover? Is there hope for David? I mean, is there hope for any of us, really, when we fall into such sin and fall into such disrepair? You know, we think about David. I mean, David's life at one point was a dumpster fire. I mean, he had deceit, lust, anger, adulterous, murderer, uh, dereliction of duties, abuse of power. I, I mean, how in the world could he be redeemed? How could, how could he be restored? Is there hope for him? And again, is there hope for any of us? Does the Bible offer any kind of hope for us when we look at ourselves and see the repeated and the deep and the dark nature of our sin? Well, thankfully, God steps on the stage in chapter 12, and, and he offers a hope. I, I think this is probably one of the most profound um, chapters in the Bible of giving hope to us. In, in chapter 12, as Kimmy read it, you, you see the grace of God all over the chapter. You, you see the grace of God in his pursuit of David it, to awaken in him uh, the nature of his sin. Uh, secondly, you see, the, you see the grace of God in exposing his sin through the consequences that were born. You, you, that, that's, that will be grace. A, and you also see grace in the nature of his consoling the sinner who repents. So grace is, is throughout this passage. I just want to look at, at, at one facet and then the other and then the third. So look with me back, just in verse 1, you see God's grace when it says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, if you use that, that verb to send, sent, it's used throughout chapter 11 in all kinds of negative ways. David sent servants to get Bathsheba. Bathsheba sent servants to tell David that she was pregnant. You know, David sent Uriah with this death sentence to Joab. But here, God sends Nathan to David. It's grace that in the midst of his sin, God isn't ignoring it. He isn't overlooking it, but he sends. Just like God pursued Adam when he says, where are you, Adam? I don't think when you read in Genesis 3, God was confused over where he was. This was a a means of going to him to elicit repentance and salvation. And, And so David, and so God sends Nathan to David. Sends him even though David had done that thing that displeased the Lord, the Lord sends Nathan to him. That's, don't you see the grace there? Aren't you thankful that God did that? You know, Nathan was a prophet. The role of the prophet was to speak for God. Now, he speaks for God. He's not making predictions. Most of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament isn't predictive. It's more calling people to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's calling people to live in a way that would honor God. And for Nathan to do this is no small task. Listen, for a prophet to go to a king and to bring about a correction or rebuke, well, how did it go for John the Baptist? He lost his head. And David, David has already shown a capacity to kill when he needs to. And so Nathan goes to him and confronts him. But he does it wisely. He brings up this parable. We don't know if David knew it was a parable. Remember, Nathan is going to ask for a verdict here. And David is the king of the land, so he's the supreme judge of all things. He's used to making judgments in cases. And so Nathan brings up this, this case about a, a poor man who had one little lamb. He bought it, raised it, loved it. It was like a daughter to him. It, it, it drank from his cup and ate at its table. 
very precious to him. And then you've got this rich man who has a traveler coming to see him, and, and he doesn't want to take from his, the abundance of his flocks. He wants to just take this man's lamb and slaughters it. Well, Nathan doesn't have to ask for a verdict uh, because David just explodes. He says the man deserves to die so quickly. Deserves to die and pay back fourfold. Now, I don't think David was so much worried about the property restitution. You see that as he says, because he had no pity. He had no compassion. David is rendering a right judgment upon this rich man. No compassion, no pity, gross insensitivity, absolute greed. When you see God's grace in pursuing sinners to awaken them. Notice in the story, this is for you and me right now. Notice in the story uh, that David can spot sin a mile away, but he can't see his own. He brings judgment to this man without even considering the nature of his own sin. This is why the Bible speaks about sin blinding us. It's the metaphor. You know, Jesus used that expression in Matthew chapter 7 about, uh, the, you know, if you want to get the speck out of your brother's eye, you best remove the plank out of your own. Why? Because sin blinds us. It's necessary for God to awaken us. God has to turn the lights on. God has to make clear to us the nature of our sin. He has to reveal to us. Because we don't want to look at our own sin. I mean, do you know the top three struggles that you have in this life? I mean, do you know your sin? I, I know that you can come in and identify the sins of others, and you may be quite accurate with that. But can you identify the sins in your own life? Do you ever find yourself praying? You know, like in Psalm 139, Show me, O Lord, any wicked way in me. Do you ever pray to know the nature of your own sin? Do you ever share that with another person? This is where I'm struggling. It's the grace of God that wakes us up to our sin. And, and, and God usually wakes us up to our sin through another brother or sister. Sometimes the Spirit of God will, you'll read Scripture and the Spirit of God will convict you, leading to repentance. But other times he does it through a Nathan. Now Nathan is a blessing to David. He is a blessing. He's a good friend to David. Please make no mistakes about that. But God's intention among his people so that we rid ourselves of sin is through the lives of other brothers and sisters speaking to us. Now, now saying this, I don't want you to pull a Nathan on us. You know, if to just mimic Nathan would be to miss it. So if we're walking down the hall and you start saying, you're the man, and hey, you're the woman, and you know, we don't want to go in that direction. You, you, you notice the gentleness of Nathan. Nathan reminded David of all that God had done. He appointed you king. He gave you the house of Saul. There's a gentleness that when we are being used by God to awaken sin in other people, we want to do it in a way, look, look at how God has worked in your life. Look at the grace of God that he has given to you. And, and, and then we want to speak specifically to the nature of the sin. You know, what is it? And we want to warn of the consequences. And we want to do it in gentleness. You know, Galatians 6 says, You who are spiritual, restore those gently. But you want to do it humbly, too, because we are susceptible of the same sins. Our words want to be gracious. The timing wants to be sensitive. You know, in Proverbs 27, we read, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That the wounds of a friend that are given to us, that's an act of faithfulness. 
I'd remind you that in that proverb, the opposite of a friend is not an enemy, it's a flatterer. Someone who flatters you. Someone who's always telling you what you, what you want to hear, as opposed to really saying things that you may need to hear. People that flatter you aren't serving you when truth needs to be spoken. Charles Simeon was an Anglican pastor in uh, Cambridge, England in the 19th century, and he was a man of high gifts, and he was a man of large ego. And one time, his friend, Henry Venn, who was no small man of God himself, uh, chided him on the nature of his ego. And the very next day, he writes to his friend and says, what a blessing, an inestimable blessing it is to have a faithful friend. Do you have a friend like that? And are you a friend like that? You know, Jonathan Edwards, in his, in his writings, he was an American pastor of the 18th century up in New England. And here's what he wrote. He says, consider that bystanders always spy some faults which we don't see ourselves. There are many secret workings of corruption which escape our sight. Resolve, therefore, I will, if I can by any convenient means, to learn what faults others find in me and what things they see in me that appear in any way blameworthy, unlovely, and unbecoming. This is grace for you to both offer but seek that kind of loving word from a friend, from a spouse, on what is unbecoming in me. This isn't to grow morbid or constantly to just work a wound until it gets deeper. It's, it's to draw the wisdom because it's so hard to see the nature of our own sin. We're so self-protective. We're so self-defensive that we need others to tell us what we may miss. Sin is blinding to us. We don't want to be in a place where these little sins are given safe sanctuary to grow and to begin to eclipse the, the good qualities that God has given to us and to begin to move in very destructive ways in our lives. So that's the first thing we see here. The grace of God in awakening sinners, and he does it through people. Do you have a friend like that? Are you a friend like that? Okay, the second thing we see in this passage is God's grace in the exposing of sin through consequences. Notice that that. Nathan had kind of set the trap, and David just walked right into it. And Nathan says, you're the man. Now, he uses the word man about six times in that parable. And now he turns it on David and says, you're the man. I don't think Nathan went in there like with the self-righteous fury, you're the man. I don't think he did it that way. I, I, my guess, and it doesn't tell us, my guess would be he was broken, he was humble, he was contrite, he was mournful. He's saying, you're the man that slept with another man's wife. You're the man that killed her husband. You're the man that has brought agony onto the nation. You're the man that has brought destruction into families. You're the man that's despised the word of God. And done what is evil in his sight. Like a pleading with him. You're the man that did this. You're the man. You notice in the text that you despise the word of God. And done what is evil in his sight. And then God says, tell Nathan. 
because you've taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, as your wife, you have despised me. You know, there's a direct relation. To despise God's word is to despise him because the words of a person, when expressed truthfully, express their character. And to despise their words, which express their character, despises God. And so then Nathan, you've despised God. And then he, then he brings the consequences. He exposes to David the nature of sin. But remember, before he did that, he shared with Nathan, or he shared with David, all that God had done. He, I made you a king. I gave you the house of Saul. I've given you peace. But notice what he says. He says, if you need it more, I would have given it to you. Did you hear the love of God for David? He loves God. He loves David in the midst of his sin. We feel so unlovely when we're knee-deep in sin, and yet, and yet God is saying, if you need it more, I would have given it to you. But then Nathan does expose the consequences. And he does it in a way that renders judgment to David, just as David rendered judgment to these others. So you took his wife, your wives will be taken. You betrayed one of your own, one of your own will betray you. You brought disruption to the peace of Israel, I'm going to bring disruption to the peace of your home. God's consequences are not punishments. Don't think of them as a, as a penal punishment. It isn't a legal punishment that Jesus will ultimately bear. But it is the natural consequences of our sin, and God brings them to bear so as to instruct us in the brokenness of our sin and, and, and to bring change to us. Remember, God won't be mocked. God won't be scorned. And Israel was to be a light to the nations. And if, the, if, if David's actions reflect the God that they worshipped among the nations, the nations would have a wrong view of God. And so God brings the consequences because he isn't mocked. He will be declared holy. He will be seen as righteous. And so the consequences have a very instructional value, not a, not a penal or punishment. Just as you, if you're a parent, you have children. You don't look to just exact revenge out of your children when they sin against you. Or when they sin, you, you want to be corrective in your instruction. Uh, your punishment wants to be corrective because you love them. You want them to see the nature of it. To, to take all the punishments or take all the repercussions away from your, your children's sinful actions would be to make you a monster as a parent. They need to see that. If you continue to come in and, and sweep them away from any sort of repercussions of their actions, how will they ever learn? That's what God does for us. So when we see God's grace here, his grace is even in the exposing of a sin by showing the consequences. And one thing, the two takeaways for you, that all sin is against God. Uh, most of us, 17% of Americans surveyed, think only, only 17% think that sin is against God. We think sin is against others. The harm and the shame that we bring when we slander, when we lie, when we cheat, uh, it hurts other people. Or perhaps in this narcissistic age, you think that, well, sin, what sin really does is it just, it just hurts ourselves. And we do live in a culture of a victim mentality where we have trouble really thinking that we do wrong. It's usually circumstances or people or situations out of our control. We have trouble saying, I am wrong. I have sinned against God. We have trouble saying that. But I want you to understand that the passage teaches all sin is against God. 
uh, much more. That's much more important than the sins that we have against others. I don't want to, I don't want to minimize it. I just want to rightly prioritize it. Because you owe God more than any other relationship you have on this, on this world. I mean, more than you owe God more than you owe your spouse, your kids, your family, your employer. God gives you breath. God is your creator. He has given you life, and you will stand before him with your life. And you owe him everything. And so to sin against his word is to sin against God. It's to despise God. Do you see sin as despising God? Do you see When you put your pleasures and pursuits above his word and his plan, do you see that as despising of God? Because all sin's not just against God, but all sin is not ignored by God. You know, it was probably a year that had passed uh, before, since the sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah to this chapter 12. A year had passed. Was God asleep at the switch? Did he forget about it? Had he overlooked sin? Oh, no, not at all. God just bided his time. And then the consequences came. God is not silent. And God is not absent from our sins. He brings about these things for our instruction. And it's for today, our instruction. You know, if you think about David, if David, when he went to the edge and he saw her bathing in the bath, if he could have thought what would have happened from his wandering eyes. He lost four sons. If you read chapters 13 to 20, it is just a consequences in spades for David right there. 13 to 20 is just a train wreck that just won't seem to end. He lost four sons. He brought thousands to death over the wars that followed. Wives became widows. Mothers became childless. Because if, if he would have known all those things, do you not think he would have run out of there like his house was on fire? Now, you cannot see the future consequences of your sins, but you can read about it in here. You can see these are the repercussions of what we do. And you can learn. You know, even if you're here today with a friend and you're not a Christian, you're just looking at the faith, I think you would agree that, that our actions, our sinful actions, can have a very corrosive effect on our lives. I mean, who among us here today doesn't have things that they wish they could somehow undo? You know, th that sense, you know, we see the rippling effect of our sinful actions among family, friends, and neighbors, and it's, it's very discouraging. This idea of, but, but I want to I warn you, that is just proving the Bible correct, that sin has disastrous effects, not just on neighbors, though, on God. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, we read, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's for all of us. And if you're here, friends, and you have secret sins, kind of pet sins they can be called, what is a pet sin? A pet sin is a, a sin that, that I feel threatened when it's threatened. Uh, where my mind kind of just drifts when it's not focused on something. I don't want to give it up. I just like it too much. Those pet sins are like an acorn. Really small, kind of unimpressive until it's planted. It's given sunlight and water and attention. And then, then it becomes quite an immovable object in our lives. I want to encourage you, consider the consequences of these pet sins. Do you have a friend that you can confess to? 
I mean, can you share what you're struggling with with another person in this church? It's very hard, isn't it? Because if we really gave, if we gave verbal action to what we think or what we're struggling with, we just think it's so rank, I would be so humiliated. But listen to what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, Life Together. The reason I quote him is because he, he was a pastor of the underground church in Germany during Nazism. And uh, he came to a place of understanding the immense value of a true brother and sisterhood in the church. You know, when the world continues to spiral out of control, we're going to find that our relationships in here are of utmost importance. Right now, it's not so not such a big deal, but as the as pressure, if pressure were to increase, let me tell you, the relationships would increase in their value. He says this: anybody who lives beneath the cross and who has discerned in the cross of Jesus the utter wickedness of all men and of his own heart will find there is no sin that can ever be alien to him. So let me just say, if you understand the nature of the cross and what you've been forgiven and you see all the wickedness of men, there is no sin of which any of us cannot fall into. He says, anybody who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified by even the rankest sins of a brother. Looking at the cross of Jesus, he knows the human heart. He knows how utterly lost it is in sin and weakness, how it goes astray in the ways of sin, and he also knows that it is accepted in the grace and the mercy. Only the brother under the cross can hear such a confession. That gives me the freedom to share with you the rankest of sins because if you truly have understood the cross of Christ, you understand you're capable of the same thing, and then there is not that sense of embarrassment. There is a sense of I have fallen far. Would you please pray for me? And the brother knows that he could have fallen just as far, and he will pray as one who walks on the edge with you. That's that's the need that we have for one another, that God will expose our sins. It's his grace to do this and to show us the consequences that we would run to one another under the cross of Christ, seeking grace and help. But then we see the third movement of God's grace, and this is, the beauty. This is the hope that God offers. You know, we've been through God has pursued David with Nathan, exposing his sin, and now showing the consequences. But thankfully, the train wreck will stop here through David's repentance. He comes to David and, of course, says, You're the man, gives the litany of consequences, and then David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Contrast that with Saul. Saul was confronted by Samuel, but he argued, he disagreed, he explained, he excused, and the kingdom was torn from him. But David committed sins worse than Saul in many ways, and it wasn't taken from him. Why? Because he repented. He repented of his sins. He said, I've sinned against the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that he's, he's disregarding Bathsheba, Uriah, the Hittite, and the nation of Israel. It just means that he understands, first and foremost, I've sinned against my own creator. It's a simple confession, but it has deadly honesty to it. I've sinned against him. And then we hear these words. This is where hope is. He says, 
He has put your sin away from you. You will not die. God commutes a sentence. God forgives him. He should die. The law said the adulterer should die by stoning. But God commutes a sentence. He forgives him. Isn't that amazing? He puts it away. Who in the world could pull out what God puts away? Nobody could. He puts it away. It's put away. Total forgiveness. There's no incremental grace here. There's no, like I used to hear in the confessional when I was raised as a Catholic, go and do these 10 things. There's no payment. There's no repayment. There's no, I'm going to do this to self-atone. I put it away. Now, you know, in a way I want to stop because I know some of you may be thinking, this is too easy. You know, this, is this even Right? I mean, we can all understand a slanderer, you know, maybe a gossip, maybe a backbiter, a complainer. They can be forgiven by God this quickly. But can David really? I mean, David was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was an abuser. And half a dozen, half a dozen other things. Is, is, is there injustice on God's part to bring this kind of forgiveness? So quickly, so thoroughly? Well, you see in verse 15, following that the child dies. This child dies. It almost seems like the child bears the punishment for David. It seems like the child is bearing the consequences of his horrendous life. The child's bearing it. Now, I don't mean to imply that the child is a type of Christ. I'm not, I'm not trying to imply that. But I want you to see that throughout the whole spectrum of the Bible, that the innocent one bears the wrath of God. To bring salvation to the guilty. It's the way it is. That's the way it was in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. Animals bore the brunt of the righteousness of God. The hides were taken and they were clothed. You see it through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. You see it up to John the Baptist when he sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. When the angel says to Mary, You will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The nature of substitution is clear. Throughout the scriptures, we need a perfect one to come and deliver us. Last week I said David needed a new David. David needed a second David. David needed a second Adam. David needed a Lord to save him, just like we do. Like Paul says it this way in Romans. He says, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show though his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Listen, that is a key phrase. God's just. He's punished sin in Christ. But he's the justifier. He's given us forgiveness for those who have faith in Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a Christian that I see myself as a sinner and I repent before God. This is how we receive consolation. David was consoled by God with forgiveness. Now, folks, everyone here sins. I know that you can identify the sins of others very quickly, usually within your own family. You've got that laser focus and really seeing the sins of others. I understand that. But we come here week after week after week. What do you do with your sins? How do you receive the consolation of God? What? We learn here, very simply. First, I would remind you, the first step of receiving this consolation is to admit that you're a sinner. This is probably the hardest step for us. 
particularly entering the faith for the non-Christian here, to admit that you're a sinner. I mean, we deny it, we excuse it, we blame shift it, we put it to the circumstances. Uh, but this question, what do you do with your sin? This, the answer you give leads to life, the aroma of life that, that Steve was talking about just a minute, or the aroma of death. What you do with this question is critical. What do you do with your sin? Can you admit that you're a sinner? David couldn't, and it led to great moral anguish, great separation from God, great struggle. In fact, he wrote Psalm 32 after this event. You know what he says in Psalm 32? He says, Blessed is the one who's forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is what happens to us. This lack of it, can you admit that I am a sinner? And David said, I have sinned against, I, I have sinned. Can you admit that you're a sinner? If you can't, then that's where you're going to stand. And you're forever going to be needing a host of people in situations to excuse much of your behavior. But, but secondly, we just don't admit it. Then we repent. And this is the difference between Saul and David, is Saul didn't repent. David did. And notice what he says, I've sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, he says, against you only have I sinned. David is acutely aware. There is an unqualified confession of sin without any excuse making. God, I've sinned against you in a thousand ways. I accept your judgment of what I did. I'm not going to take my definition of what I've done. I'm going to take your definition. But it's not just repentance isn't just just confessing to God that you've sinned. It's also the contrition, the sorrow. Now listen, many of us are sorrow over our sin. We're sorrowful over our sin. But we're usually sorrowful because of the repercussions it has on other people and the hurt that we bring. And I don't want to minimize that, but godly sorrow is I've despised God. I mean, the one who's given me life and given me breath, the one who, who causes us to live, We've offended him. That's part of true repentance. But also, thirdly, it's to make a break with the sin. We don't make peace with the enemy. We slay the enemy. That's what we do with our sin. Now, doesn't mean you're going to be victorious every single time, but we never want to make peace. We never want to give it a place in our home. And then we also, repentance involves the accepting of consequences, the accepting of it and recognizing God. That you're not punishing me. People, when you sin and repercussions come, please don't think that the punishment that fell upon Jesus is now falling upon you. For the Christian here, God cannot punish you. Think of double jeopardy. You're not punished for the same crime twice. But do think, God, thank you. You're helping, you're helping me understand your holiness and you're helping me want to stray, never to stray away from you again. So first we want to admit our sin, we want to repent of our sin, and then we want to look to the mercy of God. Listen, your forgiveness and the consolation that God gives to you cannot be rooted in the sincerity or the amount of works that you do, that it's rooted in the mercy of God. In Psalm 51, verse 1, he says this, O God, have mercy on me, according to your steadfast love, According to your abounding mercy, blot out my transgressions. That is the hope that we have. 
That's where our confidence lies. Our confidence doesn't lie in the sanctification that you're progressing through. We want that to occur. We encourage that. But that's not, my confidence is in God has mercy greater than my sin. That's why John Bunyan at the end of his life, or John Newton at the end of his life, my favorite line, in his late 80s, he's losing his sight, he's still trying to preach, and he says, two things I remember. I am a great sinner, but he's a greater Savior. He's a greater Savior. His mercy has no limits to those who call upon him in faith, repenting of their sins. And then the last thing I would say is this, that we admit it, we repent of it, we trust in his mercy. The last thing I would say is rejoice over it. Rejoice. I mean, when you look in a room this size, we have all the darkest sins in this room. We do. I mean, all of us. We've walked in it. And if not, in body, in mind we have. And according to Jesus, that's the same. Adultery, murder, backbiting, backstabbing, gossip. We, we have it all. And yet, we have the forgiveness. David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. People, do you understand what the gospel gives to us? We can be so stoically serious sometimes. We ought to be, we are the people that have the reason to be the happiest. To be the happiest and to be the holiest. I mean, he has given to us his son. We sang it. It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the, can you not praise the Lord? I mean, we are happy people. If it's true, if it's nailed to the cross and we bear it no more, then we're done with it. Cut the corpses loose. You're free in Christ to live holy and glorious lives. So this offers us profound hope to us. Only the gospel can grant that to us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the hope of the ages. This is the mystery that God's finally revealed perfectly in Christ, appealing to him by faith, repenting of your sins, admitting your guilt, and rejoicing in him. And for the believer here, people, we have reason to smile like no one has. Our sins have been put away. They've been nailed to the cross. We bear it no more. Let's take a few minutes and just give God thanks for the grace that we see in his pursuit of us, wakening us to sin, bringing about consequences to show us his holiness and instructing us and then rejoicing over this salvation. And then I'll close this in just a minute.